Amen. All right. Take your Bibles. Mark chapter number two. Mark chapter number two. Uh, Let's begin reading at uh, verse number one of our text. Mark chapter number two. It says, And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and was noised that he was in the house. You know, one thing that I think would separate this church from so many other churches around the community and around the country is the fact that Jesus is here. You know, when, when, when two or three are gathered, the Bible says, there am I in the midst of them. You know, Jesus is there. That's what's something that made it place different. It was noise that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Verse 10. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Uh, with the Lord's help this morning, I'd like to preach a sermon I've entitled, Like Never Before. Uh, let's pray this morning. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once again for allowing us to be in your house. Uh, Lord, I love coming to church, and, and I love seeing people faithful. Uh, but more uh, importantly than me, I know it pleases you uh, when you see people gathering on Sunday morning. And Lord, I pray uh, that you bless those that are here this morning. Lord, if there's a visitor, uh, Lord, I pray that they would understand that they're among friends. Uh, Lord, if there's somebody who's been coming to this church for a very long time, God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their hearts. Uh, Lord, that He would work in all of our hearts to do that which You want us to do this morning. Lord, I need You. Uh, I need You to to fill me uh, with Your Spirit. Give me the words to say. Uh, Lord, help me to be a blessing and an encouragement. And Lord, I pray that Your Word would fall on good soil uh, and help us not to be just hearers but doers also. And uh, we'll thank You for it. And we love You in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, Brother, if you could turn me down just a little bit. It's just a little bit too loud for my liking. Um, Allow me to begin by asking a question. What happens when the needs of the lost become a primary focus in a believer's life? Allow me to make a bold statement this morning. If we are going to meet the extraordinary needs of our society, then we are going to have to take extraordinary measures. If we're going to meet the extraordinary needs of our society then we are going to have to take extraordinary measures. There was a meeting where uh, people were attacking missionary work, and uh, a gentleman asked if he might stand up and say a few words. A few years ago, he began, my bank sent me to make some studies of a place in Puerto Rico. And when I got there, it was the dirtiest city imaginable. He said the place was just overrun with immorality and violence and, and theft. And the bars were full, churches were empty, families were split apart. He said it was unbelievable uh, what that city was like. And two years ago, uh, two years later, he said, I went back to that same city and the change was unreal. Everything had been completely changed. The bars were empty, churches were full, lives were being changed. People were coming back together. God was doing something. What had happened? I wondered, said the man. Did they elect a new mayor? Was the place invaded by new educators? Was there an economic stimulus package? No. A Christian missionary went amongst them 
and taught them about Jesus Christ. He said, I saw with my own two eyes what Christ can do in such a short time. And you know, it's without a doubt, I believe that our world has reached a state of reprobation that has only been exceeded by by the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about it. Homosexuality has become popular. Gang violence is considered cool among teenagers today. And the very foundation upon which our society was built upon has been cast out of public schools, out of courthouses, and out of the minds and consciences of people all over this land. Countries that were once founded by Christians are forsaking the heritage given to them by the blood, sweat, and tears of their forefathers. In our world today, there are more unsaved people than ever before. 6.8 billion people in our world. 6.8 billion, if you're familiar with the term, the 1040 window, uh, it's an area, okay, I see some nodding heads, great. The 1040 window, that area of the globe, 4.5 billion people live in that area. Of that population, over 2 billion people have never heard the gospel. Not one time. Never heard. Don't have a clear presentation of the gospel. In our world today, compromise has become the word of the day. People today have extraordinary needs. And if we're going to make a difference in our society, in this country, in our world, it's going to be with Jesus Christ. It has to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our text, uh, we're introduced to four men and their sick friend. The Bible calls him the lame man. He wasn't lame because he told bad jokes either. The lame man. And we read the compelling story of how they overcame so many obstacles just for a shot at changing one man's life forever. And you know, I think it's safe to say that these four men truly cared about this friend. I mean, they went through a lot of struggles and difficulties just to bring him to the Lord. Maybe they tried some homeopathic remedy first. Maybe they tried some herbal tea or herbal, (laughs) however you say it. You know, but they understood one thing, that they had to dedicate their task and themselves to the Lord before they embarked on that journey. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as we lay the foundation for the message this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, a great, great missions uh, text uh, where we see the principle for faith, promise, giving or grace giving, uh, some would call it. And so in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, verse 5, not as we hoped, notice this, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Verse number 8, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. I'm sure this is a very familiar passage for many of you. But I get encouraged every single time I read this passage. You know, it's interesting to note that Paul would use the Macedonian church to demonstrate giving. Uh, It was because of a circumstance that the Corinthian church had not given the offering that they were going to to help the hurting saints in Jerusalem. And so he uses the Macedonian church to say, hey, look what these guys are doing. They don't have much. I mean, they almost had nothing. And you know what that's, that's, that's indicative of today? God is not looking for millionaires. He's not looking for people with thousands of dollars. And that's great because I don't have it. (laughs) 
He's not looking for somebody with all kinds of talent or ability. There are many people that would sit back and just wait on God to give them that vision in a cloud and that, that, that large house and that big car and all these fancy things before they say, okay, God, I'm ready. That day will never come. What God expects us to give is ourselves. It's ourselves. Look at verse 5. This they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord. If there's never been a time where you can remember coming before an old-fashioned altar and bowing your knee and head and saying, God, whatever I have is yours, today would be a good, t- a good day to do that. Because when God has you, He has everything. When you give yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, whatever I have, whatever you give me is yours, giving the missions becomes easy. Helping your pastor just becomes natural. Singing the hymns this morning with joy. And I know it's cold and might be a little bit too early for some people. But you can sing them with joy because, God, you gave everything to me. How can I not but give myself to you? Think about that. I almost feel sorry for those Christians or those people. Verse number 8. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. You know, God already demonstrated his love for you. There are many people today that would say, well, why, why, why are so many people dying? And why are there so many wars going on in the world? Or why are people, uh, if God really loves people, then why is he sending them to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. Because he paid the price for that punishment. He redeemed our souls on the work of Calvary. And why in the world would anybody in their right minds push God's hand away and say, Lord, I know, but I just, I just don't want it. God demonstrated His love for you. And he, he gave you an opportunity to become rich through His poverty. We ought to give ourselves to the Lord. And you know, motive is very important to consider. And when you first get married, you quickly realize and analyze your motives. Amen? <laughs> now, I had a friend who recently got married, and he was, he was venting, okay? He was venting to me about his wife moved the cups to this cupboard, and his socks were no longer on the floor, and they were in the dresser where they're supposed to be, and he just didn't like that. And, you know, and, and motive is important to consider. And so, you know, when we were living in an apartment and not our van, my wife would often say, Honey, why don't you help clean up around the house? And I would just play that card and say, honey, I would love to. I just don't know where everything goes. <laughs> you know, how many of you said that before? Come on. <laughs> don't put your hands up. <laughs> You're shooting yourself in the foot. <laughs> but motive is important to consider. And there was a, there was a one-legged school teacher uh, who came to J. Hudson Taylor to enlist for missionary work. One leg. The guy hobbles in there. And Taylor looks at him and says, why with one leg do you desire to enlist for missionary work in China? The man looked and thought for a minute, well, I don't see those with two legs going. George Scott was accepted. You see, your motive in life will determine whether you stay or whether you go. Whether your Christianity only extends not much farther than the edge of the pew or whether you desire to be a full-time Christian and get involved in the battle, in the work. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look firstly at the extraordinary motive the extraordinary motive. I went to college and so all my notes are alliterated. Amen. <laughs> the extraordinary motive. Look at verse number one of our text of Mark chapter number two. It says, and again, he entered into Capernaum after some days and it was noise that he was in the house. 
The first motive of these four men was the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. When Jesus Christ is present, there's always a possibility for miracles. Amen? The presence of Christ. And, uh, you know, there are many Bible scholars and theologians, I'd love to meet them someday, wouldn't you, you know? <laughs> Who say that, well, you know, it's just a different day that we live in. And we can't see the, the, the miracles take place like we did in Jesus' day. Because He's not here physically. And that is just not the case. Turn over to Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. Jesus said, The things that I do shall ye do, and greater works than these shall ye do, because I go to my Father. He was trying to tell them a very, very important truth. And look at Romans chapter 8. Look at verse number 1. It says, There is, there, there is, not, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Verse 37, to sum it all up, to bring it to a conclusion, what's he saying? Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. I want you to get a hold of that very important thought in verse number 11. Look at it, it says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. Did you catch that this morning? If the same Spirit that raised the Son of God from death unto life be alive in you this morning. Man, if God can raise the dead, what can't He do? If He can create the world just by speaking, what can't He do? That Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is alive within you here this morning. If you've been saved, i got some great news. There is nothing you can't do for Jesus Christ. If God is in it and the whole world be against it, it doesn't even matter because God plus one is a majority. Amen? <laughs> And so if that spirit is within you, oh, what a great motivator. The presence of Christ. Not only that, but the prevailing condition. Look at it in verse number 2. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. You know, the Bible doesn't make many exaggerations. In fact, it doesn't make any. And here it says that there were many gathered together. And it's been estimated that there were about 10,000 people there that day. 10,000 people. Could you imagine? It'd be one thing if they were 10,000 normal people, like us here this morning, right? <laughs> 10,000 normal people. But you've under, you got to understand the context. These are people seeking a cure from the great physician. And so we have people that have you know, leprosy and you know, half a nose and maybe half a leg or three legs or something. And you know, leprosy and paralysis, blind, the deaf. Uh, people with family problems and money problems, social problems, health problems, marital problems. Does that sound like some family reunions? <laughs> Sounds like some of mine. <laughs> and on this day, they're all seeking a cure from the great physician. Today, they still seek him. If 10,000 was the attendance that day, and the estimated world population was 140 million, that need today is an innumerable amount more. Since the time of Jesus Christ, our world's population has doubled more than 25 times. 
in 2020, it will have reached 8 billion people. 8 billion. We have 6.8. That means we're growing at a rate of 1.2 every nine years. It's crazy. All these people in our world. And just to give you an idea of the innumerable amount of people who are searching, because sometimes that number can just become like, oh, 2 billion, 4 billion. You know, like some of your bank accounts, you know, like 4 billion, ah, 8 billion. No, I'm just kidding. Nobody's laughing. I guess it must be the truth. Everybody's weeping. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, all these people that are searching. Turn over to Luke chapter 5. And if we're not real careful, if we're not real careful, it can become so easy for us to be passing out tracts and witnessing to people, knocking on doors, doing everything that we can to see that somebody gets saved or comes to church. And sometimes we don't see anything. And it's real easy to get discouraged. And to lose that desire. Look at Luke chapter 5. Verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep. And let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing like he didn't know. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know, there are many things that if uh, they would happen while we're reading our Bible, it would really transform our reading. And one of those things would be tone. I would love to hear how he said it, with what emphasis and on which words. And, uh, you know, because there's a great difference between, Yes, dear, and Yes, dear. <laughs> you know? And so I read that verse with a specific kind of tone. You know how I know Peter's tone is, nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. Look what Jesus said in verse number four. It says, He said, Let down your nets for a draught. What did Peter do? He said, Okay, Lord, I will let down the net. Verse five. You see, what had happened in Peter's life is that he got so used to fishing and working and doing enough things in the flesh. So that he could see results. But when Jesus stepped up to him and said, Hey, I know you've been fishing all night, but I want you now to let out all your nets. Peter's natural reaction was, Well, Lord, I'm a fisherman. It's what I do is catch fish. (laughs) And I just finished fishing all night. If I didn't catch them, they're not there. Okay? And it can be real easy for us as Christians to knock on those doors and witness to those people and pray for our family members and our loved ones and just come to the conclusion like, Lord... They're not getting saved because I've tried. Lord, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for 50 years. Okay, this is what I do. But you've lost the desire to catch the fish. You see, the problem is never with the fish. It's with the fishermen. Peter could have caught some more fish, but he said, Lord, I've toiled the whole night and I'm a little tired. I've given everything that I can. I'm pretty sure that there's no fish in that water. But everywhere where there's fish, uh, everywhere where there's water, there's got to be something in it. See, there's streets all around this neighborhood with houses. 
You know what that says? There are people there. (laughs) And the problem is not with them. It's with the fishermen. If you would but come to an altar and come to the Lord and say, God, forgive me. Give me that desire again to witness, to let out all my nets, to do everything that I can to see that people will get saved. You know what will happen? You'll catch some fish. And you'll have to say, guys, come and help me. I can't, I, I can't control all of them. There's too many. Where are we going to put them? We'll have to build another building. That'd be a horrible thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> wow, God, what are you doing? You know, God wants to bless. He wants to see people saved. You know, it, sometimes we think that, you know, God doesn't want us to see people saved when we go out soul winning, you know? But He wants it to happen so bad. But sometimes we just lose that desire, that desire to just do whatever we can to see the fish caught. And so think about it. Two motives in our lives. The presence of Christ, the Holy Spirit within us, the prevailing condition. Eight billion people. We've got it. They need it. (laughs) What more motive do you need? Amen. Extraordinary motive. I think it's safe to say that with all the many lost people in our world today, sometimes we need to do things a little bit differently. I know it's something you don't really hear from a pulpit. Yeah, we need to change things around here, you know? (laughs) We need to do things different. But in this text, it gives us a clear conclusion that sometimes we need to go about it in a different way. Not change our message, but change our mode. Let's look at it secondly, the extraordinary mode. Look at verse number 4. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. It always seems that we try to do something great for God, problems come. Now, I'm sure I'm probably the only one going through some difficulties right now. Probably the only one who's ever had car trouble, right? <laughs> it was two, two days after we got pre-approved by our mission board that we were excited. You know, we're going to Cuba, and uh, we got somebody that can take care of our money, amen? And uh, we were excited about going there, and we were driving down the highway. And it sounded like someone took nuts and bolts, threw it in a blender, and turned it on. I'm not a mechanic, but I know enough to know that that doesn't sound right. <laughs> and so what had happened was my engine blew, okay? And my dad was a diehard Honda guy. Are there any Honda people here this morning? He's a Honda, you know, Honda. He had the hat. He had the mug, the T-shirt, you know, the socks. And he was a Honda guy. And so when, when I was considering buying my first car, he's, he said, you know, son, you should consider buying a Japanese car because they'll run forever. That's what he would always say. Well, the engine that blew was a Nissan. All right. So if you have a Japanese car, I'm sorry, but they will not run forever. All right. And so my engine blew and I was in car sales at the time. I know it's very hard to imagine. I was selling cars and I bought the make of the car that I was selling thinking, Hey, wouldn't it be great when people say, is that a good car? I could say, yeah, I have one. It kind of backfired. So in February in the great white North, amen. Hey, in the great white North, my comfort access control module went. That meant that I had no power windows, power locks, keyless remote, dome light. None of my power stuff worked. And then my fan motor went. That means my fan didn't work. And it was cold. And so all the windows are fogging up. We're driving to church. Got screaming babies, singing hymns, praises to the Lord. (laughs) That's how I maintain my, my sanity. I just think, Lord, they're singing hymns. I can't tell them to be quiet. And so we were driving to church. We were driving to church, and uh, 
you know, I got to turn right. Well, honey, wipe that window. She's wiping that window and putting her makeup on and wiping the windows. And I'm driving and wiping the windshield, trying to cover the whole thing. You know, take my jacket off and wipe it across. And, I mean, it's just problem after problem. And uh, then our insurance rates doubled. Canada has the highest insurance rates in the world. Don't you love it? And so it was just problem after problem. And, you know, but that's just what the devil will do. When you're trying to do something for God, problems are going to come. Problems will come. 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's going to come. And then the lives of these four men, think about it, visualize it. They, they got a stretcher. They took time off work. You know, they used some vacation time. Hey, they probably had it too, you know. And so they're driving, they're, they're driving. They're walking along in 100 degree heat for mile after mile. Can you see the guys with their, you know, turbans and beards and they're driving outside and, you know. <laughs> They, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and they get to the they get to the property, and just when they think, man, we can finally let this guy out and get him to Jesus, oh, how many people is that? That's like ten thousand people. And look at them, <laughs> you know, leprosy. Problems came, but you know they could have been justified in themselves saying. You know, in our culture, it's customary that we bring somebody into a house, we bring them through the door. That's just how we bring somebody in. You know, that's just what we do. And there are many people in our culture that would say, you know, we, we run bus routes in our culture. We, we pass out tracks in our culture. We go door knocking in our culture. That's what's socially acceptable. You know, when I started that basketball ministry, there are many people who said, well, that's just not how we do it. You just shouldn't do that. Uh, they're only coming to play basketball. Yeah, but they're getting saved, too. That sounds like a good thing, you know, but there are so many people that are confined in this box that they think, well, I can't use those talents and abilities that God has given me to reach out into the community in reference to those nets and in reference to this man coming to the property. You know, the roof in Bible times was the place of comfort. Do you understand the relation there? When they got to the door and they couldn't even get in, they said, "Ah, we're going to have to get uncomfortable to bring this guy to Jesus Christ we got to bust open the roof. What areas do you have that are just comfortable that you say, Lord, eh, don't touch that. I'm just comfortable. I'd love to do that. I'd love to sing, you know, Lord, a special. I'd love to, you know, take the teens out on an outing or something. Lord, I'd love to go out and help somebody disciple. I'm just comfortable with where I am. They had to get uncomfortable to bring that man to Jesus Christ. The extraordinary mode, the problems came. But the plan continued. You see, sometimes God closes a door so he can open a roof. Amen? Our job when we get confronted with a problem is never, never to say, Lord, I quit. It's never to quit. But our job is to take a step back, pray and say, Lord, would you have me do it a different way? Is there some other way I can get the job done? And that's no more true than our ministry in Cuba. I had to say, God, is there a different way we can get the job done? And there are so many people, as I look at this church and so many around the country, that I I see people and I know, man, God's given them an ability to reach young people. Or God's given them an ability to reach single people. Or God's given this person an ability to reach uh, the people in nursing homes or the people on the streets. All these different talents and abilities within the confines of a local church, if we'll use them and go out and bring these people in, Man, that's God's plan. That's what he wants you to do. That's why Paul said, you know, some are like an ear, some are like a nose. We know who the armpits are of the church, amen? 
We've all got different talents and abilities, and when we put them all together, it's a body, and it works. All right? We've got to use what God has given us. The extraordinary mode. The problems came, but the plan continued. And that's the thrust of my whole message here today. If you remember one thing, okay? Think about this. When's the last time? When's the last time you did something different to bring somebody to Jesus Christ? Oh, well, I go out soul winning. You know, I didn't ask that. Oh, I pass out tracks, you know. I didn't ask that. Oh, I teach in Sunday school. Not what I'm asking. Those people that you prayed for for years, those people that you consider on your blacklist and they'll never get saved, when's the last time you did something different to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe it might be calling them up and saying, hey, I'd like to take you out to lunch. Hey, I'd love to be a blessing to you. Do you have any needs? Can I help you with anything? I don't know what it would be, but... uh, When's the last time you did something different? And thirdly and lastly this morning, you see the extraordinary motive. Wow, man, the presence of Christ. The prevailing condition, the mode. Problems came, the plan continued. Let's look at the miracle. Extraordinary miracle that took place. In our text in verse number 11, it says, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all. Insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. After all the hard work was finally done, the four men finally got their friend to Jesus Christ. And there was a powerful cleansing. A powerful cleansing. Look at verse number 5. It says, When Jesus saw their faith, He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. You know, there's a progression of words there in that verse. Look at it. It says, When Jesus saw their faith, then. There are many people sitting here this morning who have heard the gospel. You can probably quote it back to me. Know they need to get saved, but will not because they're afraid of that confrontation. When Jesus saw their faith, they're afraid of stepping out. You know, it almost breaks my heart. Every, how, many, how many invitation times I've sat through knowing There's somebody there that needs to be saved. Peeking out of the corner of my eye, hoping to see them at the altar. Hey, you do too. Peeking out of the corner of my eye, hoping to see them come, praying, almost wanting to go back and give them a push. I mean, and they don't. Why? Pressure. Ah, what will my family think? What will my friends think? You're among friends today. We want you to get saved. Would you rather die and go to hell? Then come forward this morning and trust Jesus Christ. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's that simple. The powerful cleansing and the people's conclusion. Their conclusion was simple. They witnessed the impossible. Think about it. They get the stretcher. These four men get off work. They go for hundreds of miles in the heat up the hills, over the, 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 the hedges and the valleys, and just all over the place. And finally, they get to the property where they think, man, we can let this guy go. Oh, can't get through the door. Let's try the roof. They hike him up the roof. And as thousands, I mean thousands of people are listening to Jesus preach, wouldn't you love to hear that sermon? Man, that'd be something. Jesus is preaching. They hear some rustling on the roof. And slowly, it starts to break open. 
and a man is let down through the ceiling on a stretcher. Luke calls it a couch. A lazy boy is coming through the roof (laughs) with a bag of chips and he's reclined, you know. Could you imagine? You know what the reaction was? Wow. I have never seen anything like that before. They witnessed the impossible. And the impossible is just what George Mallory and Andrew Irvin tried to do. By the mid-1920s, the farthest corners of the earth had already been explored. And all that was left to be claimed was the summit of the highest peak on earth, Mount Everest. In 1924, a British expedition was poised to make that claim. They had already reached 24,600 feet, but it was unclear if anybody could go any higher and still survive. And on the morning of June 6, 1924, Mallory and Irvin, at 23,100 feet, set off for the peak, hoping to reach that top summit three days later. In the afternoon of June 8th, geologist Noel O'Dell, who was following behind in support, He saw two black figures, no more than just dots, on that mountain skyline. And just as they jumped to what was called the second step, the second step, they jumped and clouds swirled in front of his vision. And he couldn't see them anymore. I mean, he kept watch for hours to see signs of life. But there were none. Two days later, Odell began the long climb back up to Mallory and Irvin's last camp, hoping to see something. Signs of life. But there were none. Mallory and Irvin were lost forever. And you see, all throughout history, all over the world, there have been people so willing to give their lives for that which is deemed impossible, but for no eternal value. For nothing. Just give their lives away. The question is, will we, as Christians, be more willing to do that which is called impossible, but for eternity? Think about it. When your life and work are done for Christ, will others say of you, wow, I have never seen anything like that before. Let's pray this morning.